It scares the shit out of me. Every day I wake up and it's a school day mm-hmm. and every day I wake up and I'm like a different level of bravery I have to find mm-hmm. and I have to walk and embody it. I can't just speak it. Like, you know, I'm talking about transformation, yeah. which means I have to change too. Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined in the studio by Fazana Khan, who is a writer and cultural producer. Fazana is co-founder and executive director of Healing Justice London. You have a background in community and youth organising, um, Fazana is the creative and strategic director of Voices That Shake, um, the co-founder of Resourcing Racial Justice and Into. That's a new one that I'm adding to the um, introduction to guess. <laughs> what are you into? Um, Fazana said reality TV in which we bonded over um, family members' love of Real Housewives, um, culture, music, nature and trees. I like the way we separate nature yeah, from trees. trees. Yeah, I like that. Trees I like that. are on a, in a whole. They're like ancestors, aren't they? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Their own league. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. I hear you. Fadana, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we've been admirers of your work from afar, and these episodes are always really important to us because it's always crucial to have the people on the show that are connecting theory with practice and praxis. So that's what we see. Definitely, what you're doing as that. So it's it's really important, yeah, to have your voice on the show, and we really appreciate you making the time for us. Thank you for having me. No problem. So, Sana, where to start? How did you get into community organising? Um, I mean, how could I not? Like, I grew up. In oh, yeah, yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew in up ends. In, yeah, repping East London always for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I'm like my, the way that I want to go out. I always say like bury me in ends. Like that's bury me in ends. Um. So I yeah grew up in East London and, um, you know, grew up on an estate and it it's you know it's an estate that where the you know the community our neighbours we were all really like connected to each other's survival like. My both my parents were unwell in different ways, but also my neighbours, mm-hmm. and so everyone you know kept each other alive, mm-hmm. and and some of that was in like really great ways, and some mm-hmm. of that was in very traumatized ways as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I I always you know I was you know at school and other spaces I was like deemed as very bright and you know would would in quotations make it, mm-hmm. and for me that felt really. Uh, a very lonely space because it oh. meant leaving behind uh, the only form of success was to these very capitalist ideas and you know like leaving your community behind and this false meritocracy and I didn't have language for it mm-hmm. as a child I knew it was you know potentially you know um, like a private school had you know in- invited me to to apply there and get a scholarship and so there's loads of ways that I could see I could potentially make it but at great cost to myself and mm. to my community and actually that's not the way that I wanted to to live and move through the world. And Do you feel like you were cognizant of that at the time? I, I didn't have language for it but I had a deep intuition that, that to progress in the ways that people and teachers and folks understood me to, to make it in quotes would mean a simulation it would mean becoming white it would mean sounding different it would mean you know going to Oxbridge and you know, being less Muslim, worse, less working class, less, you know, um, a person of 
color or having mm-hmm. heritage and that wasn't appealing to me because I knew like coming from such a strong community it it, it just wasn't who I wanted to be and mm. I also feared the loss of all of those things um so yeah and then you know at the time that I was growing up there was a lot of um you know the EDL were marching um uh, you know also my parents were really politicized like my dad um and my parent you know took me to housing um housing organizing meetings the the state that we grew up on the uh, the one before before we were moved here where we were like the estate was being evicted for gentrification and building canary wharf and all those areas we were in limehouse and like my dad squatted so that more of us neighbors were not going to be separated but we would be moved together to an estate and so we ended up most of the neighbors moving uh to that estate, essentially 70% of the same neighbors moved onto that. So that having very politicized parents, politicized area, strong sense. My dad was very involved in like challenging casteism when, when he was back home. So those things were very, very present. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, there was no other way. I'm just really intrigued and inspired by the fact that you knew you had like an internal intuition that it wasn't for you the things that were being pushed onto you because I think it is so easy for us as young people like growing up in working class spaces in particular to want to to be the one to get out or to be the one that like provides for everyone or to perform a certain kind of yeah good immigrant type um, persona and that persona manifesting in educational success going to elite institutions like yeah. Do you know, becoming yeah academics, but, um, do you know what I mean? Like it's 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 really yeah. interesting to me that you knew that that because as we what we know now, what I feel like I know is that the where you get satisfaction is not from those things. Yeah, and 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 I would I would say like um, there's like for me especially there's like zero shade or shame for people who pursue that path. Yeah. Like I think especially for working class communities, I'm never going to be the person who's like, oh, why are you working here and here? When like, I know my friends, you know, if they're working at a bank Mm. and like come from ends, like that's survival. You know, Mm. like a lot of them were choosing that between trap life, you know, Mm. and not not that both those spaces are not Mm. um, harmful. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. But just that actually, like, I think a lot of, I see that that narrative also pushed by middle class folks of like, you know, entering the charity sector and like that kind of, you know, very, you know, altruistic sector. And Mm. actually like some people don't have those choices as well. Mm. And there is the world that we live in, there is no good workplace. Mm. Like there's no, we don't, you know, have the context or the conditions to have these pure workplaces. I love that. There is no good workplace that is so true it's true i mean you know i've been part of building several organizations and i do want to say that i i'm the former uh creative and strategic director because i think you'd said i i am and i'm not because oh sorry fazana sorry babes the only reason i say that is because we've passed it on to the next some of the young people are now Mm. you know leading the organization so anek metafia is leading right now. Which organisation is this? For Voices That Shake. Oh, Voices That, that Shake. Shake. Brilliant. Um, I'm still there in a supportive role and mentoring mm. role, but mm. we've got a new and really uplifting the leadership of Anik and the rest of the team Brilliant. are holding it. Um, but yeah, I've been part of building lots of organisations and um, we really don't have the conditions, mm. but 
that doesn't mean we don't do the work and that things there are ways in which we can make it better what is or how do we talk about and think about healing justice um so maybe i can give some kind of context yes please um when i was working at voices that shake increasingly and the voices that shake particularly worked around race art media and culture and particularly for young people of color and also folks on different intersections like lgbtqi um or muslim or working class and what we would what we were learning from that space is how much trauma and cumulative trauma so generational trauma all the different you know uh, impacts um of you know ongoing slow violence was um showing up in young people's lives and whenever they were trying to access support if we were looking at the state infrastructure we know that you know a lot of the spaces we go to help for health support are you know criminalize our distress and they punish us for for like poverty and the ways that we respond to poverty um and so they weren't necessarily safe spaces we know the number of deaths in custody we know um detention and and disproportionate numbers in terms of restraint and you know not believing physiologically within the public health uh, we have statistics where black men are not believed um of uh, around the pain that they experience especially internal or mental distress and then overmedicated at the same time mm-hmm. and so we see that within the the kind of public health system or or the health system and and western medicine is deeply connected to eugenics um and so there isn't really a space to go to that isn't going to also be fatal and we can say fatal for our communities um and so that infrastructure was absent and um there was just a really like deep calling that something needed to be built there and in tandem i was working with other community groups um and in particular with the uh, some young women and women of color working class women that I was working with um in tower hamlets um it was, even though it was a youth program i ended up doing a lot of gender and sexual violence work and that wasn't in- intended that was just these are the issues that we're facing in our communities and they're not isolated from trauma the trauma that men experience the trauma that the young women experience experience and also that any type of support that we would try particularly because it was to hamlets and we've got prevent who was yeah. obs- you know surveilling the community disproportionate you know kids being taken into foster care and and um by social services there was just a critical awareness that these systems didn't work but i was trialing and again at the time i didn't see it as abolition work but trying to find alternative m- methods that weren't reproducing a lot of the kind of western modalities of healing because when we think about s- sexual violence and violence a lot of increasingly we see that that work you can't do a lot of that healing not not that you can't do any of that healing through just speech based or cbt that kind of stuff you actually need other forms of healing um to be done so that needed to be in place and as we were exploring what what are the effective ways of doing healing for our communities you know um was putting in bids trying to apply for funding to to to, to build some of this stuff and it, it was recognized as health but not as youth work mm-hmm. and so that kind of sparked something in me where is this is actually public health in the same way that racism leads to premature death 
oppression leads to premature death. So it is a public health issue. By the time I was so young, I didn't know that it was just finding things out with your hands in the work. And also a lot of the young women would would say, like, I don't want to see a therapist, you know, or my parents are going to be implicated, even though the perpetrator wasn't in the family. So having that analysis, not wanting to data capture and have data handed over to the state meant mm. we had to build things outside. And so we started running workshops, um, free everything, trying to just, you know, explore these mm. things mm. and doing that for the last 10, 15 years to fast forward now where we're building public health infrastructure at scale on a national level, international level. Um, but a lot of that is just practice and figuring it out and knowing things are not working. So what does that infrastructure look like? So right now, that's a really great question. One, there's a lot of dismantling that has to be done, but you can't, it's, you know, often it's like you're on a sinking ship and you're trying to, you can't dismantle the whole ship right now because you would drown. So you've got to build the raft outside of you and also that you want to take people with you. And if you build a boat that is so unfamiliar, people will stay we're on the boat that is familiar because they can't trust the raft so you have to both build the infrastructure and then support people to travel and there's lots of ways that we want to do that at Healing Justice London one is that we want to build a lot of collective capacity and skill on our, in our communities and so the ec- ecosystems we want to build as infrastructure and I'll, I'll give you a clear example of that is that we know mental health services um as they operate now, are really harmful to our communities. They're not fit for purpose. And so, you know, a lot of the times when people are, you know, restrained or when they're experiencing psychosis and distress, we don't want to necessarily call the police, right? Um, and we also don't want people to be restrained. So that means we have to, if we, if the police is not, doesn't keep us safe and well, a lot of the psychiatric institutions and current health provisions don't keep us safe and well. We've got to build community health provisions. But to build community health provisions means we have to grow those skills in our communities. How do you know what consent looks like when someone has gone nonverbal in distress? And these are real things that we have to practice. Yeah. How do you know how to regulate someone, co-regulate someone when they're experiencing active suicidality? How do you know how to support people um, when they've said to you, communicated, Never on any terms call the police, will you call the police on me? But if I experience and I live with distress and I, you know, have, uh, you know, moments of, um, you know, extreme distress, I would like these other things to be put in place. We have to build that community skill building. And we also have to do it not only because it doesn't work, but because now the waiting lists, um, all of the, the, the time is just so... It, it's so inaccessible right now and so heavily privatized like in the last and I can give you some concrete examples in the last six months I've supported several people in active distress in suicidality and also in terms of like potentially being dangerous to to others and them and then themselves and being able to to use co-regulation techniques when my nervous system is regulated enough to help them feel safe and in incidences where you know, police have said, if you cannot calm this person down, we will, and it will look violent. They use the word, will look violent. We will have to restrain this person. And ha- and I've had to use some of that training mm-hmm. to co-regulate, you know, intimate network 
and say, use my nerves, to the point where we could get them onto a hospital ward. And they did end up being sectioned, but with zero restraint. Mm. And this is the stuff that we need to know how to do as a community, especially because we are living in the apocalypse where mental distress, pandemic, isolation, all of these things are escalating. That's the, the, the you know, what we're experiencing. And so that is a one example of infrastructure on a civic community level. But there are other things like you know, we need to build the infrastructure. So one of the things we're working towards is building a community health centre, a cultural health centre, which will have community practitioners trained in somatics so we can have access as a model. So then other boroughs can do it, other areas can do it, and we can test and iterate what does, how do we work on oppression-based trauma? How do you deal with racialized trauma? You know, so building an actual site. Other things like training doctors, we're currently working um, to train doctors on different forms of trauma techniques and so there's different ways infrastructure can be built and there's so much to say about it yeah that's amazing uh, from the states that you're hanging around there's a sense that stuff's going that stuff's going wrong yeah. but it's having the kind of conceptual tools to understand that absolutely and what you're doing it helps people to understand what's going on and why they feel a certain way yeah. sometimes boy from the end you just think you just think it's just a madness that's Probably. how you describe it. you say it's a madness but it's not a madness something very specific is happening to you yeah. right and giving them the tools or the spaces to kind of understand that. Absolutely. It's powerful. And, you know, we're really conscious that we don't, we don't want to infantilize our communities because we deal with really hard things all the time. So sometimes we'll use abolition, but other times we'll say community health. Like you, you have skin in the game. In, when it comes to all of us are patients, not all of us are afforded patienthood, mm -hmm. but all of us are patients, mm -hmm. right? And so you have skin in the game when it comes to your public health system but and, and but at the same time we also look for different entry points so for example we know that we can't do any we can't end ge gender based violence without doing work around patriarchy right and also and so that means we need to also have spaces for men to come and do their own trauma work and their own healing work and we, we used to run it's now called reimagining masculinities but you used to have a men men of color and we still do it's just called a different thing um men of color healing spaces to kind of make those things because when i was doing the work with young women it it's not effective just mm. to work you actually have to have these conversations across the board mm. and i know some people are like well what has that got to do with public health what and it's like no you have to we have to have those different entry points mm -hmm that all connect to what it means to be well, safe, dignified, and have acts, like, like access to our basic material needs in a way that we can be well. What's really good, inspiring, thought-provoking about your words, Fasana, is like so much of what we talk about on this show is about the catastrophe, is about the apocalypse, as you say, and yeah. the detail of that. But you're bringing a really great example of people like yourself doing so much work mm. to actually grapple with and mitigate like some of these social material and emotional issues that are really like hitting boiling point and I think for a lot of the listeners it will be it's like it will be quite cathartic listening to you speak because you're yeah doing the work basically I was asked, were you kind of inspired by the models of help and healthcare that were in the community already 1000% you know like a lot of people will say like oh you know <laughs> Like I have, I was sharing this the other day actually. So 
a lot of people will think, why am I still so hopeful, given that I deal with really painful, traumatic things. And I've also lived those things and they're still ongoing, Mm -hmm. like still in my intimate Mm -hmm. family, still in my intimate networks. I'm still connected to that, those things you don't separate, right? Um, Unless you choose to assimilate. But I ask myself, like, am I unrealistically idealistic or am I like, am I being realistic and I ask myself, what what do I have evidence for? And for me, I have evidence that community can keep people alive, right? Like community can do that. And actually a lot of the times in, say, domestic violence or other um, forms of, you know, d- deaths, that, you know, people say by the time someone has died as a result or been murdered as a result of domestic violence, it's not just or suicide. That is a collective failure. Um, and so... I I have evidence for myself of the ways in which communities can intervene. And I want to kind of share not just the communities intervene, but I have evidence of like real unimaginable things coming, becoming possible. And I, I see, connect that to justice work. So like Shea Guevara, a lot of people don't know, was a physician in, in the medical field. And he used to talk about revolution as a turn of the heart because he used to see patients who were dying uh, like suddenly come back to life like literally come back to life will themselves he would say will themselves back to life like so it was a willing of the unimaginable into existence that's what he understood as revolution and those are the things that I personally saw both my parents went through the health systems my dad in my mid-teens like died on the operating theater the surgeon left and then was called back in because he had willed himself back to life. You know, he had, and I have similar family members who had cardiac arrest and then in front of me and then come back to life. So on a on a physical level, I have evidence of these really like statistically like unimaginable things coming back to life. Yeah. But also knowing, and this is where it's interesting. So I shared this story like last week at, on on a, on, on a panel and then someone came up come up came up to me from the health a health professional and said by the way you know I work around hearts and you know cardiology and all of this and do you know that a lot of transplants heart transplants um the more respond effective or if someone's if they take the heart if they respond to that heart transplant is people who have community mm-hmm. and people who have family and so you see high rates on in the elderly or isolated people where a heart transplant doesn't actually take, the body rejects Mm -hmm. it. And so that was also super interesting for me because I also have evidence of communities coming together to, like, really, like, if my parents were unwell, we would, like, um, neighbours would pick us up from school. And so you might, and also it was a buffer from the state, so you can't afford counselling, but you might talk to your neighbour or someone will, like, pick you up from school mm-hmm. you know and, and you'd sit in their pers- person's house and that kept you invisible to social services um and so i also see that on a really like powerful level um what community can do and then i know that it's so much as possible like we're so possible mm. um yeah no, i i agree i i guess i guess our communities the fact that we've come through all this, so from our parents coming over here yeah. and forming the community, can show how powerful community can be, given how hostile the environment is overall. Yeah. The fact that we're here and your pro and your each generation is progressing through the system at alarming rates. Yeah. Given all the stuff that's going on, 
100. It shows you how powerful community can yeah. be. And, you know, as someone who's spiritual, I also think we move with our ancestors and their testimony of, like, not just the generational trauma, but the generational resilience. They move with us, you know, they're, they're in the room. And so I also think, you know, what, what the oppressors don't have, we have. Mm-hmm. And I really, really feel that and I feel that's why with healing justice sometimes it scares me because I'm like how does it how did we get these partners how did this happen how did it grow it's same with voices that shake and I really feel a steward Mm -hmm. of the work like I know it's gonna say sit down now your time is up you know someone else has to come in you know you don't have the skills for it I know it will be so Mm -hmm. clear to Mm -hmm. me that I'm not right for it when I'm not right for it. And right now it's also challenging me to become right for it. Yeah. Like to be brave because this work scares the shit out of me. So am I allowed to swear? Yeah, of course. <laughs> it scares the shit out of me. Every day I wake up and it's a school day mm-hmm. and every day I wake up and I'm like a different level of bravery I have to find mm-hmm. and I have to walk and embody it. I can't just speak it. Like, you know, I'm talking about transformation, yeah. which means I have to change too. Yes. And I have to give evidence of being able to transform and that's what we're saying we can't call it in without being capable of doing it ourselves it's about the collective not about the individual right it's yeah. about us as a group i think um one of the things that really stood out for me what you just said then fazana is like um what the things that they don't have like and that is like love and he- love and healing together like there's so many things that are put against us materially, socially, economically, digitally. And like it is what you're doing is embodying and practicing things that are in resistance to those things that oppress us. And it yeah. is, it's so hard to do on a day-to-day basis. So yeah. I really like you sort of talking about being like, it's transformative, it's a daily thing, like feeling brave because taking yeah. on those things is huge. Yeah, absolutely. Because you have the kind of conceptual tools to understand it as such. So... When I speak, when I think about our parents and again, or our grandparents coming somewhere and they're doing a similar kind of thing, but they don't really understand it as such. They just see it as getting on yeah. and it's not just getting on. And it's trying to take, take trying to understand the vastness of what they're doing. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think we also, I think language is, if also if you're from a diaspora where there's a language barrier, like um, I know that one, that's a huge element where you know some of us we we learn like our mother tongue um but we might not have the fullness of it in the way that our parents do do i think i've noticed that a lot in community work where there's that you know we underestimate the vastness that our parents hold the the trauma i think is also there's like an era of silence like Mm -hmm. i remember when my dad was in his whole life he'd never talked about our liberation war he never talked about you know partition none of these things it was only his end of life period that he really spoke about you know everything that all of that trauma he never talked about like my dad like really incredible things like um he worked in lots of factories when people you know who became here my dad was exiled so he had to flee the country and he came here and then he had to um, he was working in the different factories and then there was one factory where I think it was a steel factory where they made the railway tracks and it was like ma- majority white working class and then black and brown f- uh, folks in, in there and um, I remember him g- g- sharing this story of a guy was a white guy had a machine fall on him and it, it destroyed his legs and then he blamed my dad for it in order to get compensation because that was the only way he was going to get it 
And then my dad had said this story about how he kind of took the blame, not all of it, not enough to like lose his job because he knew that the guy wouldn't have livelihood any other way. So he was like, I will take as much of the blame that I could. And I was like, oh, this is really interesting because he also said that the guy was racist <laughs> and they wouldn't speak to them. He was, and you know, when we think about our parents not being able to speak English, like my dad would say, well, nobody talked to us. We just be in the factories doing manual labor and nobody would talk to us. And so, and then I, when, you know, a couple of months ago last year, we found the letters from the foreman saying calling my dad into the office because this guy had made the complaint and the investigation and all of this stuff but I also just like that for me is a very vast person to hold that complexity this white guy that is also racist shares a struggle with me in, in a way that oh, there's no a bigger person than me I know I mean I me too I, me too, I me want too. to be there I want to be with your dad on but that me I just too. don't know if I can do it you know and th- th- I think that's the basis of this podcast is can we be your dad in that situation but I, d- I don't, I don't know. know if I can I, but I, I don't know if you're I just that shaking his thing I think he's got to do but in different ways now right yeah. in different ways so you know you know the, the, you know the microaggressions that you see and you don't say nothing you just you just carry on and you do whatever, even though they're aware of what they've done. You don't say anything when you could. You, mm, we could yeah. we can say something every day, and we, right? We and also we don't know because those. I I feel like these are things that I I also would struggle with, mm. right? And but I think in those in that context where you're living from paycheck to paycheck and it's so material, it's so. Mm. I, I don't know. I don't know how I would re- respond, and I don't know what. But that's what I wanted to more point to is the vastness in, in yeah. our in our parents, and and also I think they're just the point that you were, you'd mentioned about like how much our parents held. There's a different fight at different points, right? Like sometimes that fight is on the front lines with our bodies, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's about. Doing the healing work is the fight, right? Mm. Is also the fight, and I I have a lot of elders, I have a lot of mentors, and I'm really lucky to have that. And this is an ongoing conversation that we have. And I have mentors who say to me, you know, a lot of like my black and brown brown elders will say to me, actually, like it's it's it would be easier for me to put my body on the line than to confront what is inside of me. Like the healing work terrifies me, mm. um, you know that bit and so we don't I think there's just what I, I'm trying to speak to is that there are different front lines at different points and different different um, lines in which we resist from and we should be able to do grow the capacity to do both when you need to put your body on the street in the streets mm-hmm. you need to be able to do that and others need to also be able to, to, to pr- protect you and fight with you and alongside you and when you need to confront yourself and the parts of the oppressor that we all hold and internalize, we need to be able to do that too. And yeah. that that dynamic way of um, total accessing our wholeness is the stuff that I'm I'm committed to. Yeah, it's quite it's quite interesting that it, the kind of the, the kind of a totality of healing, right? Inward healing and a physical one at the same time. And yeah. I guess Western medicine has a tendency to separate those things out, right? One hundred, yeah. I think what's really interesting about this stuff as well is that like I think it comes from the basis of everyone needs help as well and I think for working class people working class people of colour have grown up in that way um, 
to think that you're going to be able to get better on your own or through just mental strength, which is what neoliberalism capitalism tells us to do, yeah. is just a complete fallacy. And like everyone needs help. And I think it's about what you're doing is setting an example for so many people that like actually how we get better, how we heal is together. Um, I think that's really important. And sorry, just to bring it into the more specifics of the healing, could you tell us a bit about some of the sessions that um, Healing Justice London run? Sure. So um, we do lots of different types of sessions. We have regular support spaces. So things that are, you know, like, where you can get like breath circles. So you have like- What's a, a breath circle? Uh, so it's a regular space where you would come and just do some kind of regulating techniques like breathing, somatic or body techniques that help you regulate your nervous system when you're experiencing distress or you're activated and practicing that, settling yourself and finding those tools to settle yourself. And then we do broader things that are much more, for example, we have been doing some workshops around for survivors, around working with your nervous system and co-regular touch, regulatory touch, because our nervous systems, sometimes on their own, just as you said, really struggle to, to settle. And sometimes we need someone else's settled nervous system. So for, for example, with a baby, when a baby comes into the world, it doesn't have its own nervous system. It's It has its parent or primary caregiver's nervous mm-hmm. system. And that's really what it's regulating with like so if the mum is distressed the child will be holding that and sometimes what we can do is settle someone through having a really settled nervous system especially if they are in a really distressed space Mm -hmm. so co-regulatory in this one the, the practitioner that we work with she kind of shows you different types of partner holes that you can do how you might hold someone if they're you know experiencing a lot of anxiety or distress just to help calm them down and bring you know help settle them and those are just things that you can do that are touch based or you know close contact Mm -hmm. similarly we do stuff around herbalism and helping people you know connect not only with nature as a soil being an antidepressant and all these things and you know having connective relationships with their environment but also you know plants being our allies and actually like allies that help us you know different herbs different plants work and support our bodies and we are in a dynamic relationship with them so there's lots of different ways and there's tai chi as an indigenous technology for resistance Mm -hmm. Um, but but what we're trying to do in, in a more broader vision is start to make our bodies safer in order to be able to draw the wisdom and the information from our bodies to be able to heal ourselves. Like no one will know more than your own body what you need. So what we're trying to do is increasingly create the capacity or the bandwidth to inhabit our bodies. Sometimes it's not safe to be in our bodies. Like that's completely appropriate too. And the other thing that we're really working with when we are creating trauma, like understanding deeper trauma, is a lot of us move from our survival states. We move from how we've had to adapt, how we've had to survive. And what we do in the trauma work is invite ourselves to become choiceful. So, for example, if we're if my survival state in conflict is always to get angry, like always to like Mm. go into fight mode and we want to move to a non-punitive culture as part of abolition, then what I want to be able to do is have the ability, instead of going into fight, to be able to ask myself, is there another way? Is there another choice? And so we do a lot of work around um, looking at 
becoming aware of how we respond and then helping us practice alternative ways of responding if those ways of responding aren't congruent someone sometimes you need to fight like mm-hmm. sometimes fight is the absolutely appropriate response but what we do in trauma work is look at whether it's congruent with your reality is the way that you're adapting still useful for you and is it useful in this context and would a different response be more useful for you and so that's the stuff that we really want to socialize and make more accessible in our communities so that we also get to access full life that we're not we access deep connection with one another because we're not fearful and avoidant you know we get to be able to work through conflict you know and instead of you know disposing and ghosting one another you know like mm-hmm. i think that those are the things that we're trying to really help us bridge and reconcile and access and you know thri- help our communities thrive how have you found the kind of take up or response to that from the community because like you said earlier sometimes like you're building a new ship and people sometimes are hesitant to jump to the new when they're wedded to yeah. what they know. Um it's hard. It's it's really hard and I don't expect it to be any other way. Because we really, you know, did a lot of community work and worked in you know, we didn't have a building, we were just in different community centers. You know, there's a lot of trust. I, well, there's, you know, trust in in the work and you know, coming from a background in community and youth work, youth work, I think some of that enabled people to come into the space but i think there's still a long way to go and i think sometimes there are times where you know we were talking about this just on the way here it's so scary like you know i you know i've been doing this work for so long and even some days i'm like i don't know if i can go into therapy today like mm-hmm. I'm, it's too much like, i need some integration time i need some time away from all of this in quote healing cuz i'm done you know you know i think that we we have to be honest about how scary this stuff is and and also um and and recognize that and find ways in which some of so we're really keen to do a lot of our work through play and restoration where it's appropriate you can't make everything love and light and which is why we you know mm-hmm. we've been doing some of our sessions as herbalism sessions at phytology which is you know a land-based cultural site in Bethnal Green and so finding different ways that we can explore some of this stuff and recognizing not all of it will be always easy and what i do know is slow and steady like our issues aren't going to go away like it's going to take hun- hun- you know, hundreds of years to kind of mm-hmm. so we just slowly slowly work at it stay consistent do the trust building um learn and adapt when things are not relevant anymore i think the other thing is that people can over identify with how they're doing things and stay stuck in it so we also have to change you know how we do things to become more appropriate so for example a lot of our support spaces people are zoom fatigued people are so depleted so exhausted that even though people want to come and sign up for things and we get loads of sign ups we also know by the end of the day or a particular time that that when you get to that actual session there might be less numbers and so we also think about wait if the reality is we're 3 years into a pandemic and the apocalypse and all these things are happening people don't want to be on a on a zoom all of these things what else can we be doing and i think for some of us is changing the strategy so how are we building the structures and also pe- meeting people's material needs people need to get 
housing, you know, appropriate housing. That's part of health justice, you know, access to appropriate food. So really understanding our role now is, yes, we're going to do support spaces, but we're also going to work really hard on the structures. So the conditions in which people are living and surviving, like generate more capacity, then people can do you know, come to the sessions and shape the healthcare provisions with us. So I think you also have to be able to read the moment, the time, and constantly reflect on whether it's effective or not. And that's what we have to ask ourselves all the time. And sometimes you only know by trial and error, like you try something and you're like, whoa, Mm -hmm. that really didn't work. And you have to get super comfortable with, which we're not because in our movement spaces, we had these years of, you know, call out culture and everything is safe space and everything is, you know, like, and actually, you know, you cancel, you know, anything that isn't exactly perfect. And actually a lot of my internal work and our our work at Healing Justice is we're going to make mistakes. We're going to fumble because there's no blueprint. If there's a blueprint, it means we're reconstructing what is, and that's not what we want to do. And so we have to create the capacity to like, if we were white, we wouldn't say mistake or failure. We would say iteration. We would say, you know, in, in new horizon, whatever, right? And that's what tech says. That's what, you know, other sectors say. So we're affording us that that generosity of saying mm-hmm. we're just going to try something and maybe it won't work. But if we want it to be, li- you know, come from our lived experience, if we want it to be practiced, if we want it from the roots, from to be radical, then we have to be in it with our hearts and our hands. And that's that's not always gonna be pretty a practical question yeah funding that's what I yeah. that. <laughs> it's, it's real um it is real it's um we with healing justice for many years we didn't have any funding and we tried to you know and, and we were doing everything for free or sliding mm-hmm. scale you could make a donation and then got small bits of funding we won this large 10-year award yes that's amazing it's amazing and it's now precarious because <gasps> things are getting more right-wing the charities mm. commission and the war on you know war on the woke and if anything you do is political and healing justice is of course we, our political, work yeah. is to politicize health and healing like that's the work mm-hmm. funding is is really hard and we want to do this work resourced and well which is why i also um, have been doing the work you know not in the run-up to resourcing racial justice but more broadly thinking about economic justice and economic democracy as part of our liberation work like what are the alternative economies that we have how does land justice come into it how does community owned spaces come into it so i think that there is um these bigger questions and we are fundraising and we're pushing and and thinking about the ethics of it like what does it mean for us you know we don't want you know when funding makes us compete against each other how do we share resources so any office that we've had space making sure as many people that we know we've been sharing it any systems any mm. anything even like you know if we build a contract and we've worked with lawyers on it we will open source it so our peers don't have to pay for lawyers like really thinking in ways that we are becoming a redistributive and modeling a redistribution where it's appropriate, like some places it's not, and you have to recognize that. And so thinking, where can we buffer some of it? And we need to fund because the right, and Mariam Kaba says this all the time, but mm. she recently said it, the right have so much money. So much resource. A resource, a military, might, all of this stuff. We don't, we don't get, like we're, we don't even touch it. We're like in the zero percents. Mm. And not only that, the ra- racial... Race Alliance, Equity Alliance um, did this index and they were showing 
um, how many uh, people of color led organizations are led by people of color. And it's like something like, and it's the mainstream funders, and it was something like 5%. It's all led by white people. No, 95% from wow. the ones that they, the pool that they looked at. And of that 5%, 7% are funded like for core building, not just as projects. Mm. And so I think what that's also saying is the 5% of, uh, you know, people of color led organizations in the UK and of those five, it's designed to only 7% to be sustainable. So it means mm. 93% are operating short-term project projectization level unsustainable so there's got to be these huge shifts and there are incredible people i know that derek bardwell has a book coming out how to give back better you know there's so many efforts to have radical conversations around resource justice so that work is happening and i also you know really want to you know acknowledge that that infrastructure at scale that we need to be demanding for is also reparative justice. Like we are nowhere, nowhere near what, like in the UK, we have 80 billion in philanthropy, 5% of that moves, 5%. So, and given that philanthropy is essentially an extension of capitalism and that it generates more wealth than it gives away off our bodies, off mm -hmm. our bodies, there is so much that we could be moving and our communities need to get better of uniting in our demands for that instead of competing with one another and our demands to be bold and powerful like large huge bowls and non-negotiable we unify and we but this is something that we spoke organize. about i spoke earlier about the idea of help when we've asked for help, it's, we're kind of looked down, but it's, it's seen as a negative thing. So to yeah. ask someone for help that we need their help, it seems we, we can't do that. And we're kind of told not to do that. Yeah. And I mean, are you talking about movements yeah, and yeah, stuff? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry that, that that happens because that I think, I don't know with the incidences you have, but mm. I know that in the spaces that we're trying to nurture and the peers that we're around, we really think about equitable op open sourcing. So we don't also, when we say open sourcing, we want, obviously things to be accessible anything that we build we want to open source it but then we think about equity like who should it go to first yeah. so with resourcing racial justice all the systems all the methods mm. that we use, built and designed we've been working with like say Project Talawa mm. um, which is a black led feminist fund that's emerging mm. and we just did sessions with them and shared so who is it going first the yeah. knowledge and who has time to integrate and apply it before it goes to everyone like yeah. a wiki you know, mm -hmm. so really think about equity in how we redistribute and democratize our systems, our infrastructure. So, and that we just have to. It's it's sad because it's happened, and I, you know, and and there are there are people who I I know when we when we have experience who want to hoard and gatekeep, um, and sometimes that is from a fearful space that is about protection, and so then we need to think about how do we protect people and safeguard people. And and at the same time, um, build things that honor. You know, like we've had. You know, we know all the time. Black and women of colors work mm -hmm. gets co-opted all the time. Yeah. Our most radical visions get co-opted. Mm -hmm. So how do we build really healthy cultures of citation, of honoring, mm -hmm. of uplifting, um, and doing that again? Thinking about equity. It's real. It's it's real. Like, mm. you know, and it's I heartbreaking feel, too. 
I feel like throughout this whole episode, there's been so you've provided so many sort of visions and nuggets of hope, um, Fazana. But if there was anything else that you wanted to share with the listeners that would be kind of like offers kind of a critical but hopeful vision of what this this work looks like. Um. So we're at the moment. I mean, yeah, like. Um, <laughs> the willing of the unimaginable into existence like that is the thing that our communities have evidence for and do it like sit down and ask yourself what do i have evidence for and most of us are survivors Mm. of multiple different forms of violences and so so you have evidence that and, you know, and sometimes we don't fully survive like Toni Morrison says you know we survive in parts not in whole but asking yourself what do you have evidence for and i think we have evidence for our profound resilience our capacity there is so much that we can see in that um so i want to hold that and the other side is we have a we have a two-year process at the moment called rehearsing freedoms and ruth gilmore wilson talks about that you know rehearse the social order into existence that you're calling in that abolition is life in rehearsal and that feels really, really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rehearsing freedoms is about how we become skillful at liberation and getting free together and having those different partners, even the ones that we don't always want to mm. want see ourselves with. And how do we grow together and through lots of different ways, through culture, through mobilizing, through, you know, movement work. And I, I love this idea that we rehearse almost in the kind of fictional activism because when we have the capacity to be so strategic so intelligent and that genius is already like moving and walking and amongst us so i always want us to be able to organize that in a way that um it's possible like it re i all I can say is it's possible. Oh, know? that is a beautiful, that's a beautiful point to end on there. Yeah. Sana, thank you so much. It is possible. Yeah. What a great episode. Thank you so much. So thank welcome. you so much for coming on the show. That was brilliant. Listeners, thank you for joining us and we'll see you again next week. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 